We read God's Word in 1 Corinthians 3. Read chapter 3 in its entirety and the first five verses of chapter 4. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as, as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk, and ye not with meat. For hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able, for ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal, and walk as men? For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man? I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase." So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. According to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy which temple ye are. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, He taketh the wise in their own craftiness. And again, The Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise that they are vain. Therefore let no man glory in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come, all are yours, and ye are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ, and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful." But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self, for I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified. But he that judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time 
until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall every man have praise of God. This far we read the word of God. Call your attention to the last part of verse 21 through verse 23. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death, or things present or things to come, all are yours, and ye are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Beloved saints in Christ, in our text, the Holy Spirit is instructing the church regarding the relationship in which the minister of the gospel stands to the church of Christ. And therefore, by implication, the view that the church of Christ ought to have of her minister. That's the context. In fact, that's much of the first part of Ephesians, of rather of 1 Corinthians, of the first four chapters, argument after argument, reason after reason, the apostle gives why the Corinthians, who are not honoring the office of apostle and of minister of the gospel, ought to be. And so also in our text. Even if we have been, by the grace of God, honoring that office, as many of us may have been, still the instruction of the text is relevant and necessary for us. It is in the first place because we know that next week we will receive another minister. How will we view him? I don't just mean how will the honeymoon period go? What will the first six months or so be like? I mean, how will you view him in the office that he holds and in his carrying out of the office? In the second place, the instruction of the text is necessary because in addition to receiving a new minister, you remember past ministers that have served you. And so it's easy to compare. In fact, I don't suggest that it's wrong intellectually to state where one man had gifts and another man had weaknesses. And I don't mean to suggest that it's wrong to say there's something about that man that made him my personal favorite, but the error, the danger lies in making this comparison vocally and infiltrating or influencing the minds of others in the congregation so that the congregation becomes divided over the matter. And one says, I am of Paul. I, says another, am of Apollos. Yet a third, I am of Cephas. And yet a fourth, but I am of Christ. Give me Reverend Slopsma. No, give me Reverend uh, Hulstake, etc. This is the reason why the instruction of the text is relevant. In the third place, the instruction of the text is relevant not just for the congregation individually, but for the denomination of which we are a part. For ministers in Protestant Forum churches today are under attack. Attack from without. Every minister expects that. But attack also 
from within. Criticism, a freedom in speaking not well about this man or that man, leads or makes necessary the facing of the question by every one of us in the whole denomination, how do we view the office of the minister of the gospel? And then, not just generally, oh, the office is fine, but now the specific men God put in the office, what do you view them as? Now remember, that in the text, the apostle is not only getting at that point, because it lies in the context, but in the text, he's telling us how God views them. And one thing everyone ought to do, not just with regard to evaluating ministers, but every time we express an opinion, whether it's Professor Kuiper giving his opinion, or a two-year-old giving her opinion, we always ought, but usually forget to ask, does my opinion correspond with and match what God says about the matter? Am I setting myself over against God and asserting myself, or am I seeing it as He does? And in the text, the Apostle sets forth how God sees the matter. He says in some, Church of Jesus Christ, remember that you own all things. You own the office of minister. You own, I'll have to explain in what sense that's true, but you own the men who fill the office. And then don't stop there. There's not a period there. All are yours, period. But then remember that ye are Christ's. And Christ is God's. And let's drive home the principle that the Apostle is setting forth in the text and see how that becomes for us a reason to honor highly both the office of minister and the men who fill it. I call your attention to the text under the theme, The Church, Possessor of All. Notice first a striking reality. There's a truth being set forth here that that begs questions. How can this be? In the second place, we'll notice the sure basis And in that, drive home the point that this glorious reality, although it's striking, it's a glorious reality, will never change. And then in the third place, we'll drive home the practical implications that come out of it. Now, there are three things. To explain the meaning of the text in basic terms, there are three things that the Apostle is addressing in the text before us. In the first place, he's speaking of ownership. All things are yours. That means all things are of you, literally. And ye are of Christ. And Christ is of God. And the minister, as he makes a sermon, has to ask, what does he mean by that word of? And as the King James translates it, it means possession. And so the possessive is used here. Ye are Christ's. And Christ is God's. And that makes sense. There's other meanings 
Other uses of the word of, it might be source. You come, all things come out of you. Of course, that'd be a blatant untruth. But ye come out of Christ. That would be true. And Christ comes out of God. There is a sense in which that is true. But that's not the meaning here. He's speaking of ownership, possession, belonging. Indeed, for that reason, our text can be one proof text for the beautiful truth set forth in Lord's Day 1. I belong to Christ. Secondly, in the text, the apostle is ascribing ownership to the church of Jesus Christ. That's evident. He says, yours and you. And he's speaking to the church in Corinth. Now what he says is true not only of the church in Corinth. It is true of every congregation of true believers in Jesus Christ over the length and breadth of the earth and throughout the history of the world because first and foremost it is true of the church as the spiritual body of Christ. And inasmuch as the church is the body of Jesus Christ our Lord, no matter where you find her, what he says here is true. In other words, by implication, in our text, the apostle is speaking highly of the church. And inevitably, what you or I think of the office of pastor, and we could add or elder or deacon, or the men who are lawfully called of God to fill the office, says something about what we think of the church. There are many people who don't want to acknowledge that. Oh, they love the church. It's because they love the church that they will have and spread this or that opinion about this or that office bearer. That argument doesn't work with the apostle here in the text as it's set in the context. The church belongs to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. It even spoke in the context more beautifully of the church when he called it the temple of God. The glorious building in the Old Testament. Beautiful in its outward appearance as Solomon built it but beautiful even more in the function it served where God lived with and dwelt with His people in Jesus Christ. That's the church. The church is precious and wealthy. That church owns. The third thing that the Apostle is saying here to explain the text is that the church owns all things. There's a comprehensive view of what the church owns. And so he drives home the point. On the one hand, you own Paul and Apollos and Cephas. Not only apostles, Paul and Cephas, or Peter were apostles, but also ministers, which Apollos was. You own the ministers. And then, of course, you own the office that the ministers hold. But not only that, You own creation. For he goes on to speak of the world. Everything that's in the world, everything as God created it, and as He prepares it to be part of the new heavens and the new earth, He gives to the church to own and possess. And then He doesn't stop there either. 
You own matters of life and death. On the one hand, earthly life and death, but certainly also spiritual life. And those blessings that are a component of spiritual life are yours. And He doesn't stop there. What God is doing right now in history, things present, and what God is going to do in the future in history, the goal to which He's bringing it, things to come, all are yours. A comprehensive view of what the church owns. And all of this, to underscore his main point of the text, you own the office of the minister of the gospel, and the men who fill it belong to you. What the apostle is doing is using figures of speech, rhetorical devices, When he goes on to say not only Paul and Apollos or Cephas, but the world and life, death, things present and things to come, he's saying you own so much, then also you own this, the office of minister. And then he's using another figure of speech for when he refers to Paul, Apollos, and Cephas. He doesn't refer to just three men specifically, but he means to say all others who fill the office you own. Now I say, having set forth the basic idea of the apostle in verse 22, that this takes us aback. It leaves us scratching our head. It's a striking reality. In the first place, it's striking as regards its being a statement of fact. You are telling Professor Kuyper the congregation of First Protestant Reformed Church, that they own all things? From an earthly viewpoint, from a legal viewpoint, is that not absurd and patently false? You own the property on which your building is built. You own the parsonage behind the property. But can you walk to a house a mile down the road and say, we own this house? Can you go downtown and lay hold on one of the buildings there? Go to City Hall and say, we own City Hall. And the answer is, of course, no. Of course, no. Why is the apostle saying what he says? Oh, there is something he says in the text that maybe we can appreciate. We own life. Oh, that's eternal life as God gave it to us in Jesus Christ. A firm possession. I can understand that I own that. I own death. And when understood this way, that death was my enemy, but Jesus Christ has overcome death, and now gives you and me death, the death we must go through in the body, as a means by which to be brought to heaven. I say, I understand that, but how can you say I own all things. And even more, that next week when Reverend Holstig is installed into office, we will say he's our minister. He's not Zion's minister anymore. He's not Southeast minister. He's ours. That we can understand. But in what sense can we say we possess all true ministers of the gospel anywhere? This is a striking reality. 
It raises questions. There's a second way in which it raises questions. And that is that it seems on the face of it so very contrary to the purpose for which the Apostle is putting it. He's saying, you value what you own. So understanding that you own the office of minister and the men who fill it, honor them highly. And yet, to 21st century Americans, the idea of ownership is not so much, I will honor it highly but I will use it how I want. The young 17-year-old man, who not only has recently gotten a truck, but also put new wheels and tires on that truck, doesn't always say, now that I spent all that money, I'm going to be very careful with how I use my truck. But he finds a long stretch of road where no other cars are coming and he puts on the brakes and he gives it gas and he leaves a mile of rubber. I own it! I can do what I want! Isn't that the implication to draw from the text? If we own Paul and Apollos and Cephas, why may we not be divided over which one we like better? But that's not the point of the Apostle. He's saying, honor. And so, having explained in what sense this is striking, how to make sense of it, that's the question that remains yet in the first point. Well, remember, first of all, as regards the general principle that the church is possessor of all things, that all in the Bible does not mean every. It never did. It never does. It never will. Christ's love for all, for instance, and his love for every is not one and the same thing. The one is true. He loves all. That he loves every is not true. And so here, the apostle is not saying that the church owns this world from the viewpoint of its carnality, its wickedness, its depravity. That the church can lay hold on anything in the world and say, we can use this to our advantage. A common grace idea leads in that direction sometimes when we try to redeem culture and redeem entertainment. That's not the point the apostle is making. That the church owns all means that she owns all that Jesus Christ has earned, bought, possesses, and puts in the service of our salvation And He gives us all that for us to use. In other words, that the church owns all means we are stewards and heirs. These aren't new concepts now. Jesus Christ, having died and now being exalted to the right hand of God, is given to be the Lord of all. Yes, even creation, as Jesus Christ works to renew and redeem creation, and out of this creation make a new heavens and new earth. He's the Lord of history, things present. He is the one who governs the goal of history and brings it to that goal, things 
to come. And as Lord, He says to the church, I bought you. You are the ones for whom I've done all this. And therefore I give you creation, and I give you every spiritual gift to use as stewards in the behalf of God and in His covenant. And therefore, from stewardship, we can see the idea of heir here. In what sense do we own all? Not that today we fully enjoy the possession of all things, but we have the promise that what's already embedded in the text and begins to be true of the church here below will finally be true of us when in heaven the church of Jesus Christ gathered together in one body serves her Lord and is given to rule in the new heavens and in the new earth as heirs and as stewards of Jesus Christ. What does that mean very practically for us today? Well, I'm going to refer to some other Bible passages to explain what it means very practically. It means that possessing spiritual life, we will live unto our Savior. And possessing death, that is, death being overcome for us, we will not fear death, we will not live a life of death as in a corrupt life, but we will live again for the glory of God. All things work for our salvation. And our light afflictions, which are but for a moment, work for us a far more exceeding weight of glory. That's the point. All things serve us. That is the explanation of the Apostles' meaning that all things are yours. And now when he comes to the more specific point he really wants to make, that we own the office of minister, what he means is, in the first place, It's an ecclesiastical office. It's not a political office. It's not a civil office. It is a church office. And in the second place, that that office isn't merely found in the church, but it serves the church. That point, he's been driving home. Let's see in some ways how he's been doing that. In chapter 1, verses 21 to 23, he speaks of the wisdom of God, uh, sorry, of the world. After that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. That's a way in which he's been driving home the point. The office of the pastor and of the apostle is to preach Christ. It serves the church in that sense. Again in verse 30, Of Him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The office of the preacher of the gospel declares that Jesus Christ and the fullness of salvation in Him. Even in chapter 3, verse 16, the office of the gospel tells the church, you are the temple of God. That's a glorious service that the office of the minister renders to the church of Jesus Christ that it declares the fullness of the saving work of Jesus Christ for us. 
And to add to that, the glory of the office, and therefore a reason why the church receives with joy the news that she possesses it, that is, God gave it to her to serve Him, the glory of the office is that by it faith is worked. That's our Heidelberg Catechism in its treatment of the means of grace, Lord's Day 25, but listen to the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5, Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom ye believed? And then when you remember that as a child of God, but as a depraved sinner, an earthling, I need so much to grow in my faith, grow in my hope, grow in my godliness. And I ask the question, how will that happen? I go back to the work of the office of the minister. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Through the planting and through the watering, God gave the increase. There you have it in a nutshell. How does the church possess the office of the gospel and minister of the gospel? This way. That through that office, God declares to the church the glorious riches that He has prepared for us in Christ causes us to marvel at them, stand amazed at them, desire to hear more of them, and builds us up in faith. Now, You wouldn't abuse that office, would you? Or would I? On what basis is all of this true? Is this just the apostle trying to use nice words? After all, he's he's got a dog in the fight. He's got skin in it. Some say I am of Paul. So is it just him using rhetoric? Is it just him using words to try to convince them? Or is there an abiding truth that doesn't first of all relate to Paul that explains this, which abiding truth you and I must see, to see that the doctrine set forth in the text is true for us today as well as it was for the Corinthians then. And the answer is yes, there are in fact two truths that provide the basis for the Apostle to say what he says. The first is the mediatorial office and work of Jesus Christ Himself. For all things are yours, and ye are Christ's. He doesn't say you are Jesus. Or belong to Jesus? Does it say you belong to the Lord? Those are all true. When he says you are Christ's, it means to bring forward to your mind and mine the mediatorial office of Jesus, who as prophet declares to us his saving work and benefits, as priest laid down his life on the cross of Calvary, to earn all of salvation for us, and as King, defends and preserves us in the enjoyment of that salvation He has purchased for us. Here the Apostle does what every preacher of the Gospel is to do in every text. 
Drive us who are sinners to see that the glorious truths of salvation are true for us on the basis of and on account of and in no way apart from the work of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. He's not saying all things are yours because you were created by God the sixth day of creation week. All things are yours because you are humans. In Adam, before he fell, that could be said. But Adam fell. We fell in him. His guilt becomes ours. His depravity and the corruption of his nature is passed on to us. We are not, we cannot be by nature stewards and heirs of these things. But Jesus Christ sent his only begotten Son. And he earned for sinners the right to be put in the church of Christ. And he earned for sinners the right not only to be in the church of Christ, but to be declared righteous and to know that heaven is being prepared for us. And he earned for sinners the right to receive all things as gifts of God to be used in the service of God. In other words... You possess all. Not because we are rich inherently, for we were destitute. Not because we bought this right or privilege, for it is not something that can be bought, but you own all as a gift of the grace of the almighty, gracious, loving, merciful God. To you in Jesus Christ. That first is the basis. The second basis, the second doctrine that serves as a basis to which the Apostle points our attention in the text is that of the covenant. Not explicitly does it use the word, but ye are Christ's. He's the mediator of the covenant. And Christ is God's. And we're reminded of the very purpose for which God sent Christ. It's rooted in the very nature and being of God Himself. He is a covenant God. And as a covenant God sent Christ to realize His covenant. And Christ in dying for us brings us into His covenant. All that the Apostle says in the text is true because at bottom, Jehovah God is taking sinners and making us His friends. According to His wisdom, we need the office of the minister of the gospel so long as we're here on earth in order to enjoy that friendship. From that viewpoint, of course, it's a temporary office, the office of minister is. I will not be Professor Kuiper in heaven. Though I'm in heaven, you will not call me Professor. Though Reverend Holstake is in heaven, you will not call him Reverend. The office is finished. But on earth, in the realizing of his covenant, 
it pleases God to do so through the ministry of men. You see the order? One thing, and it's an amazing thing to say the church possesses all and to mean by that what we said the text means, but the apostle keeps building, and ye are Christ's. More amazing yet. And Christ is God's. More amazing yet. Let's have the biggest, the broadest, the God-centered perspective of the matter in the service of God carrying out His will and His saving work. He saves a church and gives us ministers. This basis is sure. That is, there's no doubt about it, you are Christ's and Christ is God's. The apostle doesn't say, maybe you are Christ and maybe Christ is God's. Then there's no basis. But you are. Definite facts. And the basis is sure because the work of Jesus Christ on the cross is a finished work. He has redeemed His people. He has made complete atonement for sin. It is sure because the resurrection of Christ and the exaltation to the right hand of God indicates that this work of God is complete. He will give the church those gifts that He has purchased. He will not sever this relationship. He will not say, you were mine, but now you're not. All things were yours once, but I take them from you now. That won't happen. The purpose of God in Jesus Christ is an unending, eternal purpose and unchangeable purpose. He who governs history has prepared heaven for us so that not only do things present serve our salvation, but the things to come, which is heaven itself, will surely be given us. The basis is sure. And on that, I make two points. This again is the riches of the church of Jesus Christ. Do you despise the church? Do you see the church as unnecessary? Or would you off in your own home doing your own bit of layman's theology say, oh, the church, church, spiritual body of Christ, that's important. Membership in a local congregation? I don't need that. Beloved, the apostle was not telling the Corinthians about something that was theoretically true of them apart from their membership in the church of Corinth. He was telling them something that was true of them as members of the church of Corinth. The church glorious body of Christ. And then therefore, though the minister is just a human, a sinner, a weak man in and of himself, yet the purpose for which God raised him up and the work God does through him is an amazing purpose connected to the glory and honor of the church. If the basis weren't sure, 
If Christ is not our everlasting and eternal mediator, if the covenant of God is not a reality that God intends to continue, then I can't say that about the church. I can't say that about the office of minister, but those things are sure and true. The implications follow. And so thirdly, very specifically, let's consider those practical implications. The Apostle points out two of them in the immediate preceding and in the immediate following context. Therefore let no man glory in men. Why not? For, because, all things are yours. Why would you glory in a man? By that, the apostle isn't referring to the right honor and view we have of the minister of the gospel, but glorying in men, as he speaks of it, refers to a saying, I am of Paul. You're of Apollos? Then I'm not your friend and I'm going to talk to you. I'm of Paul. If you're not on my side, we don't have much in common. Why would you glory in men. As the Apostle says earlier, is it Paul that laid down his life for you? Does the text say all things are yours and you are Cephas's? You are Christ's. Don't glory in men so as to divide. Look at the one head of the church and see that that one head provides such wealth and riches for his church that he gives us many ministers and each have different gifts, different strengths, different weaknesses, all of which our Lord says the church needs or he would not have given us all of them. To use an illustration again. Have two china dishes, and they are both maybe today they're not worth much, but they were in their day. So they're not just a paper plate that you'll throw away. Two china dishes, they have a different pattern, and you like one pattern more than the other. All right, so you like one pattern more than the other, and you set the pattern that you like more than the other, you set that dish on the table and put the cake or something on it so that the guests can all see it. All right. But you still honor the other one, don't you? You don't put it on the floor and step on it. It's a china dish. It might not be your favorite, but you honor it. And so the office of minister. Practical implication number one, don't glory in men in the sense that one man rises above all others in your mind. Practical implication number two, don't judge ministers. And that's the following context, the first five verses of chapter four, and it really would take another sermon to drive home the point the Apostle is making, but let's just 
make it very simple for now. Isn't saying again that you may have your own idea and what the man's strengths or weaknesses are. But don't speak as if you are the Lord to whom he answers and the judgment you pass on him is the judgment that he will receive in this life or another. The apostle concludes those five verses by saying this. You're going to judge me? And they were. Some said, I am of Paul, and they judged him highly. Some said, I am of Cephas and Apollos, and they put Paul down. And Paul says, they're both wrong. But regardless of your error, how you speak of me and judge me isn't ultimately the issue, for I stand before Jesus Christ. Do you remember that about your pastor? He'll stand before Jesus Christ. Do not judge then. Do not be censorious. Do not be overly critical. Those are the two practical implications that come out of the text and its context. And it leads us to ask the question, well then what do we do? And the answer is in the first place, honor Him. For the office He holds. And honoring Him includes when you hear somebody speak negatively of Him, saying to the brother or sister, whether I agree with your personal assessment or not is not the point. Did you just speak of Him the way the Lord sees Him? That's the question. Honor Him. Defend Him. And of course, pray for Him. How can one who's critical and fault-finding pray? Sometimes if I would ask people like that, the very question, their answer would be something like this. I pray. What do you pray for? Evidently, you're leaving me the impression that what you pray for is that he'll see that you're right and he will change to please you. It seems that that's what you're praying for. That's not what we're to pray for. Pray for him. That he be faithful in his labor and that he bring to you that riches which you already possess. Set them before you in the gospel preached week after week and in that way exercise the office well. Then pray for yourselves. Pray for yourselves that through Him and through His ministry, God unite you more and more in one, in one Spirit, in one Lord. And then pray. Pray that all the ministers of the denomination and all true pastors of the gospel of grace everywhere, for all are yours. Pray that they all have the strength, the grace, and the power to carry out the work of their office when criticized still to love and serve faithfully. Do this, not glorying in men, not judging, rather honoring and praying 
do this to the praise and the glory of God. For you see, not only does our text as it goes on build to a climax in laying the foundation for the reason why we ought to honor the office highly, for ye are Christ, and Christ is God's, but it also ends, as it were, in a doxology of praise and adoration. Church of Jesus Christ, you belong to Him. And He belongs to God. To whom else would you rather belong? Is this not a song of praise? Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, cause that thy words spoken might be worked in our hearts, and especially the doctrines set forth, give us hope and strengthen us in faith, and have the fruit of godliness. This we pray, because Thou art the God to whom we belong, and the God who has provided the office of pastor and minister for the edification, upbuilding of the church of Jesus Christ. And therefore we pray in His name. Amen.